Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Song of Songs. We're going to look at chapter 7, chapter 8. Uh, here's the question before us this morning. This is the question of the text. Are you ready? Uh, is lifelong love possible? Is lifelong love possible? That's where we are in this text. Sharon James asks, why is it that passionate romance routinely fizzles out over the years? Why does a soulmate so easily become a roommate, she asks. Why does the rapid heartbeat of excitement in the early years morph into the heavy-heartedness of disappointment in the later years, she asks. And then she laments. She says, listen, it happens to every couple. What happens? The monotony of matrimony, she says. Now, she's a, she's a marriage specialist, speaker, popular author, retreat holder, all the, you know, whatever those celebrity folks do. It happens to every couple, the monotony of matrimony, the kids' schedules, long work days, piles of bills, mounds of laundry, never-ending housework, the grass that needs cutting every week. It's easy to collapse into bed each night, give each other a peck on the cheek, turn off the light, and then rinse, repeat, and do again the next day. Is lifelong love possible? Liquid State is her pen name, her pseudonym. Isn't that a cool pen name? Liquid State. Liquid State. She wrote an article called, Do You Want a Lifelong Love? Question mark. Well, here are three core skills you didn't learn from your shrink. So that's her style. Kind of an edgy style. Kind of like it. Liquid State says everyone has three possible romantic futures. So right now, you and me, all of us sitting here, have three possible romantic futures. Romantic future, possible number one. Stay single and choose yourself. Number two, find a great life partner and flourish. Number three, find a mediocre life partner and settle. So there you have it, your romantic future right before your eyes, okay? She says later in the article, she talks about this camping trip she took with this couple she knew and how enlightening it was for her. She says this, on the car ride over, the guy started lashing out at the woman, first finding fault with her choice of campsite, then her navigational abilities. Nobody does that. Then the reckless way she drove. The woman, for her part, grilled the guy about the evening plans and berated the lack of forethought in everything he does. The couple continued to bicker late into the night, she said, after setting up camp, letting no moments of repose slip by. Needless to say, our fun trip turned into a pile of suck, end quote. Uh, that couple, my parents, she says, is lifelong love possible? Psychology Today recently documents six scientific-based tips for lifelong love. So it seems that everyone's bringing up this. Everyone's trying to address it. It seems to be a, a crisis in our culture, a crisis in the United States, a crisis in the world. There seems to be so lack of lifelong love that people are trying to get a handle on it. People are trying to control it. People are trying to address it. Psychology, psychiatry, chemically, physically, spiritually, morally, everyone is getting in on this game. Lifelong love. They, whoever writes psychology today, say, we know from research studies that love can happen in a split second and can have the effect of cocaine. However, more than an arrow shot by Cupid, it is oxytocin. That's a powerful hormone that does some neurotransmitter in the brain. They call it the love drug or the love hormone, research says. It is oxytocin that plays a key role in the love bond. 
So their research, Psychology Today, says they have now discovered, by research, six proven ways to generate oxytocin in you and in your relationships to generate lifelong love. Are you ready? Here's number one. What do you think the number one way to do that is? Oh, you know it. It's on the tip of your tongue. Sexual intimacy, of course. Making love, of course. Number two, what do you think number two is? To generate oxytocin. Hugging. Hugging. And we thought hugging was so innocent. Number three, express gratitude. And they say in this research often, quote, gratitude is a glue that binds. Furthermore, research shows that with express gratitude, participants reported that they felt more loving towards the person. Number four, what's the fourth way? To generate oxytocin, according to scientific research, psychology today, to generate lifelong love. Six crucial tips. The fourth, speak with respect to one another. Do this when you're alone and do this in the company of other people. Number five, maintain a positive self-image. Or no, a positive image of your partner, not a self-image, your partner's image. Quote, men and women who continue to maintain that their partner is attractive, funny, kind, and ideal for them in every way. Remain content with each other, end quote. And number six, what do you think number six is? You ready? Embrace forgiveness. What I'm about to quote is from them, it's not me, and they are going to quote the Puritans. Can you believe this? Here's what they say, psychology today. The Puritans call marriage the little church within the church. In marriage, every day you love and every day you forgive. It's an ongoing sacrament of love and forgiveness. Now, here's the question for me. Am I just hearing things or have we been looking at this stuff for months now? Am I just hearing things or have we heard this for several Sundays now what they're talking about? I mean, we've seen vividly on display, vividly in the Song of Songs, this is what the Song of Songs has been talking about. Every, all these six science-based tips that they give is all over the Song of Songs. So, is lifelong love possible? Oh, I don't know. Why don't we read and find out? Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. reading from the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 1 through 10. He, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, 
and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. She. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Hey, before we pray, just some just quick dating tips and quick marital tips for those of you that are engaged just for the future. Um, you probably do not want to ever liken your significant other's nose to the Tower of Lebanon. Just, just saying. Lord, we thank you that you speak us back to life again. We thank you, Spirit, that, that you open our eyes, you enlighten our hearts, you do for us which we cannot do for ourselves. You bring power to our weakness. So we want to boast in our weakness so your power be made perfect right now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, y'all, so we only have two more, two more Sundays, two more sermons in Song of Songs. We have today and we have next week. So you can tell your friends it's safe to come back to church again, okay? We're almost done. Uh, so what are we going to do next? What's the next preaching program that we're going to do? Well, there are, we, there are some sassy staff at Redeemer, I will not name them, Dorothy, Holly, and Laura, um, who are requesting Advent sermons. Advent sermons on Advent. Who does such a thing? Well, I've been asked over the years because I've been doing this for a while, Jeff, why, why, why don't you preach Advent sermons that much? You hardly ever preach Advent sermons. I mean, do you have some sort of theological concern about doing Advent sermons? Is there some deep doctrinal concern that you have? Or maybe it's cultural. You're just culturally concerned about, you know, the commercialization of Christmas and and all that goes on with that. And Jeff, why? Why do, you, why do you seem to avoid Advent sermons? Well, here's my reason. They just quite simply bore me. It's the same texts, right? You've got angels, you've got Mary, you've got Joseph, and those things get preached. You've got no room left in the end. Those passages get preached and preached and preached, and I've preached them over and over and over again. So usually what I end up doing is I keep going with whatever book we're in all the way through Advent. Advent. Now, I usually do something on Christmas every once in a while, but I'll just keep going through the book. And see, some of our best Advents have happened in the book of Ecclesiastes. Do you remember that? I mean, that was great. Everything was meaningless, including Christmas. It was a great Advent. And then we did Acts. Do you remember we did Acts? We saw the birth of the church. We saw the gospel thundering forward. We saw this outrageous, adventurous Paul taking and going where few people have ever gone before. Fantastic. Last year, remember, we were in John chapter 1. We were actually looking at the meaning of life, the Lagos, the Word, who addresses the book of Ecclesiastes. Those were great Advents. Nobody complained then, but all of a sudden, now, people are starting to want Advent sermons. So in my defense, I do want to say this before we continue. Calvin didn't preach Advent sermons. He didn't even preach Christmas sermons. Do you know what happened one time? Sunday fell on Christmas. This is what he did. He gets into his pulpit. This was the intro to his sermon. Are you ready for this? He said... Now, I see here today more people than I am accustomed to having at my sermon. <laughs> Why is that? He asks. Ah, it is Christmas Day. And who told you this? 
You poor beasts. If you think that Jesus Christ was born today, you are as crazed as a wild beast. So at least I'm not doing that, right? You crazed beasts. All right, so we are going to do Advent. I'm finally going to do some Advent sermons. So we got two more here, and then we're going to start Advent. Um, and then what are we going to do? What's after Advent sermons? You know what we're going to do? We're going to do Ephesians. I would never have tackled Ephesians until I did Romans, but because I've done Romans, we're going to tackle Ephesians. And we're going to start with the wonder of all that chapter one, and we're going to move into all the mysteries and all the controversies, and we're going to unleash the power of the gospel in that particular book. And we're going to look at that book has such a fascinating structure because every time it gives you this breathtaking divine drama of doctrine, he prays because he knows that prayer is the way it becomes real in our life, that the divine drama becomes your drama, your story. So that's what we're going to do. I thought about it about a week and a half ago, and as I've been thinking about it, I get this great sense of burden to preach Ephesians. So that's probably what we're going to do, and we'll do that the rest of the semester. So let's get back to this text, shall we? What is lifelong love possible? That's the question of the text. We're listening to the greatest hits album on love. I mean, this is, everyone listened to the, it's just like Kanye West just came out with his album, right? Jesus is King. He's got lots of love songs in there, or Jesus is King songs in there. This is the greatest hits album ever written on love. The ancient world was listening to these songs. The ancient church listened to these songs. They listened to it so much they had more books, more preaching, more studies on Song of Songs than Galatians and Romans the ancient church did. Wise singles and happy couples throughout history have listened to these songs. Wise singles and happy couples throughout history have felt the beauty and the power of this music. Today's love song happens later in life. It's later in life. This is no longer the wedding. This is no longer the honeymoon. They've logged some time with each other. Well, Jeff, how do you know this? Well, you look at verse 2. He says, your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. The image here is the opposite of a six-pack. This is not a flat belly. Uh, this is the picture of fruitfulness, the fruitfulness of children Years have gone by. They've raised a family together, right? Today's love song is about seasoned love. This is about love that's been happening for a while. They've been married for a while. This is about long-haul love. This is beyond the honeymoon stage of love. This is about lifelong love. They've logged time in the school of experience. If Luther was here, he'd say, listen, there are two things that happen for you to change. You have to have gospel instruction. You've got to be taught. And then you've got to go into the school of experience where that doctrine gets pressed into your life in life. So what's happened with these two is they have experienced the school of experience. They have logged time with their messy lives and their messy relationship. They've wrestled with long, lifelong love. Is lifelong possible? This couple says, yes. Yes, it's possible, this couple says. Yes, amidst the staggering 
staggering odds that are both ancient and modern, that are assaulting lifelong love at every angle, not to mention mostly from inside our own selves. But they say, yes, it's possible. So what's happening here is this couple has something to tell us about lifelong love because they've wrestled with it, because they've experienced it, because they've done it. So this isn't Sharon James, the popular you know, author, speaker on marriage and sex and counseling couples. Uh, this isn't your therapist or psychology today. This isn't a, a song of songs list of who's who of scholars like Duguid or Longman or Carr or Griffins or or Glendale, or Riken. This isn't Netflix or The Bachelor, right? This isn't internet porn. This isn't Kanye West. This isn't even Jeff Hatton telling you something about lifelong love. This is an inspired couple telling you about lifelong love. This is divine words through a human relationship telling you something about Lifelong love. This is <laughs> the verbal, active presence of God telling you. This is the Word of God telling us. Everyone on the planet woke up this morning, goes through their day, goes through their week, goes through their life starving for what God says about lifelong love. I mean, there was a book, I mean, there's a movie that just came out on the Joker. He was starving for it, right? Every fairy tale is trying to touch on it. Every major epic motion picture is swinging around it, circling it. Everyone is starving for lifelong love. Even you who are single... You're starving for it. Especially those of you who are single and are contemplating marriage. I mean, come on, let's face it. Statistics today are 50-50 that marriages make it. 50-50. So, uh, would you go on a plane if the pilot got on the intercom and said, Hey, top of the morning to you, everybody. Hope you're having a great day. Just a way of reminder, just a reminder, there is a 50-50 chance that you will not make it to your final destination this morning. But that's what singles are contemplating. The relationship or the potential relationship, if I do get married, there's a 50-50 chance that we'll make it. What about those that are committed to singleness? You're not contemplating marriage. You're, it's just a state of singleness. Are you starving for long life love? Paige Benton Brown wrote an article about singleness called Singled Out by God for Good. Singled out by God for good. What a great title to an article. She says that Christians and churches wrongly treat singleness like it's plan B for the Christian life. She says that Christians and churches say stupid things, stupid things to singles and, and implied to singles, things like this. Here are some of them. She mentions four of them. She says, well, quote, as soon as you are satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment, end quote. Next one, she says, you're too picky. We use that all the time. You're too picky. That's why you're single. You're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters by which to work. She says, we say this to singles. As a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work now. 
You're single. You can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work, to which she says, as though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work. And as if marriage doesn't have that factor, that emotional reality to it either. And then she says, before you can marry, we say this to singles, before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. Gosh, I don't, I gag on that one. Heard that so many times. As though God grants marriage as a second blessing to being satisfactorily sanctified, end quote. So what about you who are not contemplating marriage and are single? Is singleness an okay place? Do you know that the Christianity is the only religion, only belief system in all the world that actually values singleness for itself, that it's good? Do you starve for lifelong love? What we're about to look at here will reach you too. What we're about to look at will renew you too. So let's get after it. Are you ready? What does God say about lifelong love? Here's the first thing. I'm going to say it clearly, you know, you know doctrinally, so you get everything. It's down. If you want to take notes, here you go. Uh, here it is. What does God say about lifelong love? He says this. If you're going to experience lifelong love, couples that experience lifelong love are couples who are best friends and lovers. Who experiences lifelong love? Those couples that are best friends and lovers. I mean, look what's going on here. Look at 7, 11 through 13. You're going to need your electronic device. There's Bibles in front of you if you need the text open. Uh, We did not read these. We read the first part because it was more exciting. The second part, if you look at 7, 11 through 13, 8, 1 through 4, they both begin and end the same way. Watch this. They both begin with best friend imagery and end with sexual imagery. Lover imagery. Watch. 7, 11 through 13 begins with doing life together. Do you see this? They're they're best friends. They're doing life together as best friends in the villages, in the fields, in the vineyards, in the gardens. Today we'd say places like work, places like your career, shopping, business, recreation, places where you express your gifts, your talents, your abilities, places of fun and interest and rest. That's the places, doing life together as best friends. But notice it ends with sexual intimacy as lovers. In the first part, she says, there. There, in life, while we do life together as best friends, there I will make love to you. There I will give you my love. And then 8, 1 through 4 begins with a brother and sister bond as best friends. In the ancient world, a brother and sister were, were supposedly the, best, the ideal best friend scenario. And so that image is taken. They're They have a brother-sister bond as best friends, but it ends with sexual intimacy of lovers. She literally says, his left hand is under my head and his right hand is sexually caressing me. So lifelong love is always both. It's always best friends and lovers. It's not an either or. It's not one without the other. It's both. It's a false choice to say you have to have one or the other. This passage is saying, God's word is saying, if you're going to experience lifelong love, your lovers and best friends together. Those who are that will experience lifelong love. There's something else that's helpful here. Marriage tends to bring two different people together. You ever notice that? Those of you who are married, you notice that. Your spouse, you know, you were attracted to the things that were different because they're not like you, and now that you are together, they annoy you. It's just the way it works, right? 
So tend, we tend to do this. There's usually tends to be one person in the relationship that's more, shall we say, schedule-oriented, who's more into planning and making sure things get done, get her done. And there's one that's more like uh, organic. In our relationship, you can probably guess that's where we fall into that. We're as opposites as you could be. Do you know that every test we took to do church planning, uh, to be a pastor, we had to be assessed and dissected. Everything we took, you know what they did at the end of that? They got together. They were very concerned. They brought us together, and this is what the, the counselor said to us. You guys are the exact opposite on everything. We're very concerned for you. Yeah, we, we, we know we're exact opposites. I don't think there could be more opposite people on the planet than us, Right? So, generally speaking, one spouse tends to be more intentional, lives by scheduling, right? Let's plan it. Let's get it down. Let's get her done. Another spouse tends to be more organic. They live by spontaneity. Let's chill. I don't even know what that means, let's chill. What does let's chill mean? I don't, even, I don't know how to have fun. That's why my wife loves to have fun. I have no idea what fun, I don't even know how to spell it. Opposites, right? Well, we tend to be that way. Both are at work here. Watch this. There's intentionality. In chapter 7, she's saying, come, my beloved, come. Oh, this is a plan. Let us go out into the fields. Oh, we're going out to the fields. We're not going to the pool. We're going to the fields. Fantastic. Let us lodge in villages. If you're going to lodge in a village, you've got to make reservations. Let us go out early to the vineyards. We're not going out in the afternoon. We're going out early. That means we're getting up. We're setting our alarm clock. And we're going out to the vineyards to see whether the vines have budded. That means you've got to know when the vines bud. This is not chill. This is like vines bud now. Let's go. Right? And then she says in the midst of this, come, my beloved. She's very intentional. She says, there I will give you my love. Now, watch the organic part. If I found you outside, chapter 8, look how chapter 8 begins. If I found you outside, oh, this is, this is organic, this is spontaneous. If I found you outside, I would kiss you. If I found you outside, I would lead you, 8-1. I would lead you and bring you to the house of my mother, that's 8-2. And then all of a sudden, spontaneously, with no schedule, no planning, no warning, his left hand is under her head and his right hand is sexually caressing her, 8-3. Both are at work in this text. So in other words, if you're only intentional in your marriage, if you're only intentional in trying to be best friends and lovers, if you're only intentional in lifelong love, if you're only intentional, your relationship becomes dutiful. It becomes dry. It becomes metallic. It becomes moralistic. It becomes emotionally empty. You have action without passion. But all, if all you are, though, is organic, if all you are spontaneous, if you're just organic and spontaneous about being best friends and lovers, you're not intentional at all. You're just organic about being best friends and lovers. Your relationship becomes stagnant. Your relationship gets stuck your relationship stands still. Your relationship becomes indifferent. You become relationally inactive. You have emotion 
without action. And the Bible defines love as action and emotion. It's one coin called love that has two sides. There's not one without the other. There's no love if you just have action and don't have emotion. There's no love if you just have emotion and you don't have action. And isn't that interesting that God usually brings two people together that got to learn to love? Here's what you can do, though. If you tend to be one or the other, which generally people tend to be, let's say you tend to be the intentionality person, you tend to be the action person. Uh, what you can do is you can admit that you tend to be action and oriented and you tend to not have the spontaneity and the organicness and more of the emotion and the feelings part of that, right? So what you can do is you can confess that because you can say, you know love means both. Love is always both and you are lacking in one. So what you do is you admit it, you confess it, and you ask God to work. And then what do you do? You go act your way into new feelings, I will have people come to me all the time and say, I just, don't love, I just don't love her anymore. I just don't love him anymore. And I go, so what? So? I love, you got, what, what, what part do you have? Do, can, you, can you act like you love her? I think I could do that. Okay. Can you confess that you don't love her? Yeah, I can do that. Okay. So then now you're going to start at bringing God into this. And you're going to start acting your way to new feelings, and you're going to act like you love her, and you're going to treat her like you love her, and I guarantee you, you'll love her. Let passion, if you have passion, let passion drive you to action. Let your emotion drive you to intentionality, because it's always both. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Jesus laid down his life for sinners. In other words, he's in He's intensely intentional. He laid down his life. That's as intentional as you can be. And then the text says, for the joy set before him. That's intentionally passionate. He was intentionally passionate for you. It's both passion and action. What does God say about lifelong love? First, Lifelong love, if you're going to experience it, you've got to be best friends and lovers. Not one without the other. There's no such thing. Second, couples who are mutually serving each other experience lifelong love. So couples that, that are best friends and lovers experience it, and couples that mutually serve each other experience it. So let's look at, here's the big text, seven. This could be the most sexually graphic text in all of Song of Song. Yes, Songs 7, 1 through 10 is sexually electric, but don't miss this. It's not sexually selfish. Notice what the Solomon-like man, the, the king-like man is doing. It's the power in the text. It's the electricity in the text. It's the wonder in the text. It's, it's the surprise in the text. What does he do? He assumes the position of a servant. Now, this is so breathtaking because on the wedding night, he started from the top and moved his way down. But now, in lifelong love, he starts at her feet and moves his way up. 
Watch what the text says. Look at verse 1. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Only, and this is so important, only servants took off a queen's sandals. Only a servant took off a queen's sandals. And the king becomes her servant. Everything he's doing to her in 7, 1 through 10 is giving, giving, giving to her. He serves her. So he lowers himself, why? To lift her up. He empties himself, why? To fill her up. He meets her needs. Why? To complete her. In other words, he's loving her. He's serving her. Keller explains, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely permanently, exclusively to you. To you, honey. I give everything to you. And she's serving him, and you're asking, oh yeah, right, where is she serving him? Well, look, how, look what he says in verse 6. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one with all your delights. <laughs> and then in 7 through 10, he describes how she's like fruit, dates, grapes, apples, wines. In other words, she's nourishing him. She's feeding him. She's healing him. She's meeting her needs. She's serving him. She's loving him. And Jane says it this way. She's feeding his heart emotionally. She's feeding his body physically. And she's feeding his inner man spiritually in a way nothing else could. A truly good marriage will have that effect on both husband and wife. That's the way God designed it. Now notice they both love serving each other. This is breathtaking. They both love serving each other. They both delight in delighting each other. They are both electrified and electrifying each other. They are both rejoicing and satisfying each other. I mean, she sums it up for both of them in verse 10, does she not? She says, I am my beloved's and his desires for me. There is utter love in loving the other. I mean, Paul, you know Paul spent time on this text. I think Paul was meditating on this text, on the Song of Songs, when he was talking about how husbands are to treat wives and wives are to treat husbands in Ephesians, let's say. Because in Ephesians, Paul says simply, he's looking at this text, he says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Well, why, why would you say such a thing? Because if you're one, if you're one, if, you're, if your soul and your body have become one, if you love your spouse, you're loving you. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but notice the words he picks, 
right out of this text. But they feed their body and care for their body. Couples who mutually serve each other experience lifelong love. Do you know the night before Jesus was crucified, uh, he shocks the whole world. He shocks the religious world. He shocks his immediate disciples. He does something that has never before been seen in the history of the planet. He's done something no God has ever done. He's done something no human hero in all of epic history has ever done. He's done something, and he does something that no religion to this day has ever done. He gets a bucket of water and bends down and becomes their servant. He washes their feet. No God does that, but the God of the Bible does. Jesus does. And why would he do such a thing? Why would God become last? Why would God become a servant? And the answer is, the God of the Bible lowers himself to lift you up. The God of the Bible empties himself to fill you up. The God of the Bible meets your needs to make you whole. The God of the Bible feeds you, nourishes you, heals you, puts you back together again with his life, his death, his resurrection, and his present presence. So what do you do? Be healed. Be fed. Be nourished. Be loved. Be served by him. And then go do likewise. 